Hey guys, I'm Chastity, and you're listening to the Ancient Conspiracies Podcast, where we connect the origins of some of the most popular conspiracy theories to biblical history. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is one that I've been looking forward to for a while. This episode and next episode are going to be my final two episodes of the season. As I've mentioned before, I'm going to take a break for the summer to spend some time at home with family while school is out. But I will be back in August to plunge head first into the book of Enoch, followed by the book of Revelation. We're going to do a deep dive into the prophetic books of the Bible and connect them to everything we've discussed so far in the podcast. I have zero doubt that scripture is going to come alive in ways that you've never experienced before. And I can't wait to share insights that you may have never considered. And of course, a large part of our discussion in fall will center around the topic that we are discussing today, the Antichrist. And as usual, in order to understand what's to come, we have to look back at what's already been. And in the case of the Antichrist, we have to start with Nimrod. Many biblical scholars believe Nimrod to be the first Antichrist. And we speak a lot about him in the podcast because of his hugely significant impact on the ancient world. Not only was he the first king to rule earth after the flood of Noah, but he was also famous for his rebellion against God. And as we discussed last episode, it appears as though he may have been possessed by Satan, which initiated this rebellion in the exact same way that the final Antichrist will also be possessed by Satan. Now, I know I've mentioned this in numerous episodes, but forgive me as I once again explain a brief history of Nimrod for any newbies, because it's the key to understanding his connection to the final Antichrist. Under the influence of Satan, Nimrod elevated himself above God Almighty and was worshipped as such by numerous ancient civilizations. He essentially became the pagan counterfeit of God Almighty. And after he died, his wife gave birth to a son. Now, she claimed that the spirit of Nimrod impregnated her. And therefore, her son was not only the son of God, but he was God reincarnated, Nimrod reincarnated. And this is very clearly a counterfeit of Jesus Christ, who himself was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was widely known as not only the Son of Almighty God, but also as God in the flesh. And as we discussed last episode, the concept of reincarnation is yet another counterfeit of the resurrection. Whereas Jesus literally conquered death, the spirit of Satan falsely appears to have power over death by continually inhabiting new leaders throughout history. And this concept was widely promoted throughout ancient Egypt. When a pharaoh would pass away, the priests would conduct a raising of Osiris ceremony so that the spirit of Osiris would possess the new pharaoh and he would then be the living representative of the pagan god. Coincidentally, Osiris was the Egyptian name given to Nimrod. So the raising of Osiris ceremony originated from the concept of Nimrod's spirit having the ability to be reincarnated into his son. And every ancient pagan culture had a virtually identical variation of this story. And this is because during the reign of Nimrod, the entire population was still in one place, fresh off the boat, if you will. And after the languages were confused and the people were dispersed at Babel, they took with them this history and Nimrod was given different names based on the different languages and cultures. Now, Nimrod's son goes on to rule earth in his father's stead. In Babylon, he was known as Tammuz. In Egypt, he was Horus. In Greece, he was Adonis. And in Rome, he was known as Apollo. And Apollo is a name referenced in scripture. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, we're given the name of the king who resides over the bottomless pit. In Hebrew, his name was Abaddon or Abaddon. But in Greek, his name was Apollyon or Apollo. And you may not have realized it, but Apollo was not only the reincarnated spirit of the first Antichrist, his father, Nimrod. 
But we're told in scripture that the spirit of Apollo, or more aptly, the spirit who possessed Apollo, will also possess the final Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Antichrist is called the son of perdition. The word perdition in Greek is Apollia or Apollo. And what's interesting is that in John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition, alluding to the fact that he too was possessed by Satan to carry out his betrayal of Christ. In the same way that the first Antichrist was possessed by Satan, and the final Antichrist will also be possessed by Satan. And it just so happens that the final Antichrist will also have the same global power as Nimrod once had. Remember, after the flood of Noah, the global population was all in one location and of one language. It wasn't until the Tower of Babel that the languages were confused and the people were dispersed across the globe. In the same way that the final Antichrist will once again reunite the globe as one, a one-world order under his leadership. Now, with the sudden death of Tammuz, or Apollo as he was known in Rome, came a prophecy that he would one day return and rule earth once again in a future age. And this is yet another counterfeit to the story of Christ. After Christ's resurrection, he went to prepare a place for us in heaven, and we were promised that he would one day return to rule the nations and make all things new. In the same way, paganism promotes that the son of the pagan god will also one day return to rule earth and reunite his kingdom in a new age. And this will be the person widely known as the Antichrist, whose story will be so virtually identical to the truth that many will accept him as their long-awaited Messiah. But his sole purpose is to reunite his ancient pagan empire and to once again rule the globe in place of God Almighty. And there's a reason why Apollo's name is mentioned in Scripture, out of all the variations of this story across multiple civilizations. Apollo was the pagan god of Rome, the ancient Roman Empire, an empire that's still said to exist in the end days, according to the book of Daniel. In episode 19, we discussed the dream of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who dreamt of a statue which Daniel translated as a foreshadowing of all future empires to come, dare I say all future pagan or beast empires. The first empire was Nebuchadnezzar's, and it was made of gold, the Babylonian empire. The next empire that would rise to power would be silver, representing the Persian empire. The third empire to rise would be brass, representing the Greek empire. And the fourth empire to rise would be iron, representing the Roman empire. And this Roman empire never quite went away. The final empire in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the fifth empire, were the feet of the statue. And it was described as being a combination of iron mixed with clay. And historically, Rome was never truly conquered. In fact, in spirit, it still exists. And there's a famous prophecy that I'm certain you've heard of without ever having realized where it came from. It was from the pagan prophetess of Apollo. She was known as Kume's Sibyl. Now, we discussed this in depth in episode 14, but in the final prophecy that she received, she references the future age of history that would usher in the return of Apollo's reign. And a portion of her prophecy was permanently engraved onto the great seal of the United States, the Novus Ordo Seclorum, which can be found on the back of the dollar bill, is the Latin translation taken straight from her prophecy. It literally translates into English as the new order of the age, the age when Apollo would return and reunite his kingdom under a new world order. 
And if you're wondering what it's doing on the back of our dollar bill, I did a mini-series starting with episode 13 on the pagan symbolism sprinkled throughout Washington and how America was built to replicate the ancient Roman Empire with the ultimate goal of being a key player in bringing Apollo's return to fruition. In other words, bringing the Antichrist to power. Now, in Revelation chapter 13, John gives a description of the Antichrist. Quote, I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, unquote. Now, in the Old Testament, the term sea was a reference to humanity, possibly where we derive the term sea of humanity. So he's saying that he stood on the shores of humanity, if you will, and he saw a beast rising up out of the midst of humanity, meaning that he's physically a man, a human. And he had seven heads, which are explained later in Revelation as being both seven hills and seven kings. I'll explain this later. And he also had ten horns, each of which had a crown. Now, the term horns in the Old Testament is a reference for kings or authorities. And this is verified later in Revelation chapter 17, where we're told that his ten horns are ten kings who have no kingdoms. But they shall receive authority as kings alongside the beast, hence their crowns. And in episode 18, we connected these 10 kings to global corporations. They have no kingdom per se, but they are the rulers of earth who rise to power and create what might be referred to as the beast system during the final beast empire. Exactly what was envisioned by Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. The final empire was represented as the feet of the statue, which obviously had 10 toes, which is either either a crazy coincidence or divinely inspired. But regardless, it's yet another reference to these 10 leaders who rise to power in the final empire. And we're told in Daniel chapter 8 that once they reach the height of their power, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce countenance. Daniel chapter 7 refers to him as a little horn, and this could allude to the possibility that he's either insignificant at first, or he works for one of the ten. But Daniel goes on to say that as he rises to power, he overthrows three of the ten horns. And this little horn is described as having eyes like a man, again, connecting him to mankind. And he speaks arrogantly. We're told throughout scripture that through his confidence, he will win over the world through peace treaties, performing miraculous but deceitful signs and wonders. And he will have knowledge to explain ancient secrets. Basically, he will have an answer for all the things that are unexplainable, like UFOs and the origins of the universe. And this could be satanically inspired knowledge or that he simply has access to a library of knowledge like a security clearance of sorts to the oldest known archives of human history. Either way, this knowledge and charisma will elevate him to a position of great power. And I would argue that he may already be in one. It wouldn't necessarily be logical for Satan to just pick some random stranger one day out of thin air to do his bidding. In episode 10, we talked about the importance of ancient bloodlines and how they were rigorously tracked throughout generations by those who were considered the most noble. And not nobility coming from God Almighty, but rather the nobility of those who descended from the gods of old, who continued to elevate their bloodlines as gods on earth or as time went on, as the representatives of gods on earth. They became the royal lineages. Bloodlines are hugely significant. Take the Jews, for example. Not just any Israelite can become a priest. Only those who descend from the tribe of Levi, which now has to be verified through DNA, are qualified to be priests in the temple. In the same manner, only someone who is genetically proven to be a descendant of King David would ever qualify to be their long-awaited Messiah. 
And because the Jews rejected Christ, they are still waiting for their Messiah to arrive, which means that they will be deceived into thinking that the Antichrist is their long-awaited Messiah, which proves that the Antichrist will have to be of the correct pedigree to qualify. And since Satan knew this, he too prioritized the tracking of bloodlines as his descendants intermarried with the most important lineages throughout history to qualify. And I say his descendants because of the enmity that was placed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent by God in the Garden of Eden. Whether they are physical seed or spiritually possessed, they embody the lineage that represents his kingdom. And the Antichrist will not be some random person that's chosen spur the moment. He was bred for this purpose. And I find it interesting that QAnon influencer Juan Osavin was once interviewed and spoke about the royal breeding programs. Not only are the royals fascinated with breeding horses to make the perfect horse, but they've also long been fascinated with breeding the perfect heir who is genetically connected with all royal lineages. And I'm going to go a bit off script here, but I need to share this to prove the point that bloodlines are vastly important, even to evil. Within the occult, there was a ritual made famous by Aleister Crowley, which he discusses in his book titled Moonchild. Essentially, it encompasses sex magic to both conceive and birth a child via rituals, with the sole purpose of it being the devil incarnated. In fact, this is what the movie Rosemary's Baby was about. So within dark occult circles, there has long been a, quote, breeding program attempting to birth the devil himself. So whereas it's believed that the Antichrist will be possessed by Satan at a specific point, many believe after he receives his mortal head wound and is perceived to have died and miraculously resurrected, it's also highly plausible that he will also be of the genetic lineage of Satan, bred from pagan and occult bloodlines. And this brings us to the person who is most qualified on the planet to fit the bill. King Charles. Now, I want to make it abundantly clear that I am not saying for certain that King Charles is the Antichrist, but this podcast is called Ancient Conspiracies, and this is the conspiracy of all conspiracies, and I'm about to blow your mind with how perfectly he fits the bill. First and foremost, we mentioned that the Roman god Apollo has long been prophesied to one day return and reunite the ancient Roman Empire. He is literally the fulfillment of the prophecy in Revelation chapter 17 verse 8 of the beast who, quote, once was, now is not, and yet will come again, unquote. One of Prince Charles's names is Arthur, after King Arthur, the legendary King of Britain, who has often been referred to as the, quote, once and future king, unquote. The king who has long been believed to one day return in the role of a messiah to save his people, which proves that this prophecy transcends time periods and civilization. Now, Charles is a king of all ancient bloodlines. His lineage chart traces to every great world leader, from ancient Babylon to Assyria to Rome's ancient emperors to Egypt's ancient pharaohs to Islam's Muhammad. Did you know that King Charles converted to Islam back in the late 1990s? He once studied Arabic to better understand the Quran due to his fascination with Islamic history and theology. Not only that, but he received an honorary doctorate in Islamic studies. He also claims to be a descendant of King David, and he's been widely promoted as a descendant of David on visits to Israel in the past. And this is something that they hold sacred, so it wouldn't have been mentioned had they not believed it to be true. 
And speaking of Israel, one of the prophecies regarding Christ's return is that he will one day descend onto the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, Israel, just like he had done when he was here before. Did you realize that for 2,000 years after Christ's death, there was no Jerusalem or Israel? According to Pastor Jack Hibbs, under the Roman Empire, Israel became Palestine and Jerusalem was known as Capitolina. And it remained that way for 2,000 years until May 14, 1948, when Israel was once again recognized as its own nation. In one day, Israel was reborn, exactly as was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, opening up the prophecy of Christ's return to be fulfilled once again. And not only that, exactly six months later, on November 14, 1948, the same year that Israel was reborn, King Charles was also born. Now we're told in Revelation 13 that the beast is given his power, throne, and great authority by a red dragon. And in a fascinating coincidence, there is a red dragon associated with one of King Charles's titles. The flag of Wales is a red dragon. In 1953, Wales adopted a red dragon as their national symbol. The red dragon dates back to the ancient Romans. Britannia was once the head of the Western Roman Empire, and a symbol of Roman antiquity was a red dragon. In 1958, Queen Elizabeth announced that she would create a new position for Charles as Prince of Wales. And 11 years later, in 1969, then Prince Charles was coronated as Prince of Wales. And on the day that his ceremony took place, which was televised, he was surrounded by banners of this red dragon at a castle in Wales. So if the red dragon symbolizes the ancient Roman Empire, then I guess you could say that the Roman Empire, the fourth beast empire predicted by Nebuchadnezzar, is who gave Charles his power, throne, and great authority. He is a descendant of this empire. And get this, when Charles later recounted who put the crown on his head during the ceremony, he said, my father, when the recordings clearly show that it was his mother, the queen, who did it, which makes his remark all the more eerie. And if his path to succession being literally provided by a red dragon isn't enough, his coat of arms is almost an identical replica of the beast described in the book of Revelation. When you read the book of Revelation, many people assign it to be mysterious and symbolic. But what if it's not symbolism at all? What if John was describing an image that represented a specific person? A coat of arms is a set of symbols controlled by the College of Heraldry that distinguishes countries, corporations, and lineages. And when it comes to royalty, it's an ancient way of identifying the royal families originating from the Holy Roman Empire. And as you reach the highest members of the royal family, the coat of arms becomes specific to individuals, like an ancient calling card. And the ancient calling card of King Charles is a fascinating one. First and foremost, his helm is that of sovereign. According to Tim Cohen, who wrote a book titled The Antichrist and a Cup of Tea, Queen Elizabeth's helm was changed when she went from princess to queen. Now, the helm is the crown that sits atop the military helmet located at the top of the coat of arms. And when she was a princess, it was a crown representative of princess. And when she became queen, her coat of arms changed to reflect the sovereign crown instead. But according to Tim Cohen, King Charles was given the sovereign helm from the start when he was crowned prince in 1969. And if you think about it, they spent years creating his coat of arms even before that point, which suggests that it was always intended for him to be sovereign, as if they had insight that he was intended to be the fulfillment of certain prophecies. 
Now, we're told in Revelation 13 by John that the beast who rose from the sea of humanity resembled a leopard, but had feet like a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And when you look at King Charles's coat of arms, this is what's depicted. And it's believed that this combination of features is indicative of past emperors of the Roman Empire, which included France, represented by the leopard, Germany, represented by the bear, and England, which is represented by the lion. And then on the opposite side of the crest is depicted a unicorn. Now, the unicorn represents the Scottish, English, and Irish bloodlines that came from the Stuart dynasty. It eventually garnered the name the Unicorn Dynasty, and it's from this bloodline that produced the kings and queens of England. As I mentioned in episode 10, it's the most plausible of the ancient bloodlines to produce the Antichrist. And because it's King Charles's lineage, it's predominantly featured on his coat of arms. Now, if we go back to Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist is depicted as a little horn that rises in the midst of the ten horns. And it's really interesting that Daniel describes this little horn as having the eyes of a man. If you look at the unicorn on King Charles's coat of arms, his unicorn has human eyes. And not only is the U.S. Secret Service's code name for him Unicorn when he visits the United States, but he is supposedly referred to this unicorn on his coat of arms as my little horn. And in Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, we're told that the Antichrist will, quote, show no regard for the God of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show any regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all, unquote. Now, we clearly established earlier that he has connections to every ancient lineage, from King David for the Jews to Muhammad for the Muslims. So it makes sense that he will show no regard for any god because he claims descent from them all. And not only that, King Charles doesn't adhere to a specific faith. Not only did he convert to Islam, but he's also the head of the Church of England. And around the same time that he converted to Islam, he caused some concern for his decision to change one of his titles. Rather than continuing to be called Defender of the Faith, he wanted the title changed to say Defender of Faith in general. His rationale was that he wanted all of his subjects to identify with him, not just the Christians, fulfilling the prophecy that he will show no regard for the God of his fathers. And with regards to the fact that the Antichrist is prophesied to have no regard for the desire of women, which is often used to imply that the Antichrist may actually be homosexual, the desire of women is a title rather than something that deals with sexuality. In the Zohar, a book widely regarded in Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, the Messiah was called the desire of women because he was the promised seed, the savior. The women of antiquity knew that there would come a woman who would be fortunate enough to bear the seed that would crush the serpent's head. And they desired to bear that seed. Therefore, the Messiah was the desire of women, which is why in Luke chapter one, Mary says that all generations would call her blessed. So the fact that the Antichrist shows no regard for the desire of women means that he doesn't regard the actual Messiah. In fact, in the following verse in Daniel chapter 11, verse 38, it says that instead of regarding the God of his fathers, the Messiah or any other God for that matter, in their place, he will honor a God of strongholds. Some translations say fortresses or munitions, basically a God of war warfare, or what might be described as a god of destruction, which is exactly what perdition means in Greek. Another connection to him being the son of perdition. Perdition not only translates into Greek as Apollo, but it literally means utter destruction. Now, in Revelation chapter 17, we're given an explanation for the beast that John described back in chapter 13. 
We're told that the seven heads of the beast represent both the seven hills on which the harlot sits and seven kings. Now, the seven hills are a direct reference to Rome. Rome is surrounded by seven mountains, again, connecting the Antichrist as descended from the ancient Roman Empire. And the seven kings drives this connection home. Supposedly, there have been seven Charleses to rule the Holy Roman Empire. World Book Encyclopedia and other reference documents summarize the history of the Holy Roman Empire by these seven kings. And we're told in Revelation that the beast will be an eighth king who also belongs to the seven. When King Charles reunites the ancient Roman Empire, he will be the eighth Charles to rule. But he's also one of the seven because he descends from Charles VI through the Habsburg bloodline. So this is yet another potentially incredible fulfillment of prophecy. And the last major connection that I want to point out is King Charles's endeavors. He spent over 50 years serving as Prince of Wales, and many believed that he was sort of hidden in the shadow of his mother, Queen Elizabeth. But I'm here to tell you that he spent years laying a foundation, and I have a sneaky suspicion that through his power now as sovereign, we're going to see it manifest at an exponential rate. I don't think it's any secret that King Charles has his quirks. In fact, he's been called one of the most eccentric sovereigns that Great Britain has ever had. And one of his main priorities is sustainability. He's even been called the Green King. His environmental activism began decades before words like sustainable, organic, and grass-fed were trendy. And he placed himself in positions to help mitigate things like the climate crisis. And that means that along the way, he teamed up with global foundations like the World Economic Forum, whose founder is considered by many to be a modern-day Hitler, Klaus Schwab. In fact, he's currently trying to implement what's been titled the Fourth Industrial Revolution, but I've heard some call it the Fourth Reich. And the Fourth Industrial Revolution is intended to, quote, fundamentally alter the way we live, work, and relate to one another. It will transform humanity unlike anything we've ever experienced before. The first industrial revolution used water and steam power to mechanize production. The second used electrical power to create mass production. The third used electronics and information technology to automate production. And the fourth will build onto the third, a digital revolution that is characterized by a fusion of technologies intended to blur the lines between the physical, digital, and biological spheres, unquote. This is a quote taken directly from the World Economic Forum's website. This is literally a man who believes that humanity is a plague on the globe. He's the one who's pushing the transhumanist agenda that we discussed last episode. The fourth industrial revolution will utilize technologies like Elon Musk's Neuralink and connect humans to technology. As we discussed last episode, the quote-unquote profit of the World Economic Forum, Yuval Harari, has made it abundantly clear that this merge of man and machine will make humanity so advanced that those who choose not to make the merge may face annihilation because they will be considered completely useless, a waste of space and planetary resources. If that doesn't sound like the mark of the beast to you, I don't know what else would. And Klaus Schwab is known for his desire to completely control the globe. In fact, he wants to control every single aspect of human life. He's known for saying things like, quote, By the year 2030, you will own nothing and you will be happy, unquote. Basically, they will own everything and offer it free, like a government assistance program, putting you directly at their mercy, which is exactly what he wants. If you use too much water, they'll cut your water off. If you use too much electricity, they'll turn your electricity off. You produce too many gas emissions, you'll get taxed. If they think you're overweight, 
they'll deny you access to purchasing groceries. And Klaus Schwab, alongside King Charles, initiated yet another campaign in the year 2020. They called it the Great Reset. Supposedly, it was an economic recovery plan drawn up by the World Economic Forum under the guidance of King Charles in response to the pandemic. When it was launched in June of 2020, the video featured then-Prince Charles promoting it. The aim of the Great Reset was to facilitate the rebuilding of the globe in a way that prioritized sustainability. In fact, it had three core components, according to Klaus Schwab, creating conditions for a stakeholder economy, building a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable way of utilizing environmental, social, and governance metrics, and harnessing innovations like the Fourth Industrial Revolution. In other words, the Great Reset is the new world order. There's no way around it. They are trying to control the globe, weaponize all of our resources, and force us to merge with technology while promoting it to be the most sustainable way to preserve the planet. And King Charles has been a key player in this movement from the beginning. I want to play you a clip real quick of a speech he gave at the COP26 just a year and a half ago in November of 2021. Now, the COP is a climate change conference for the United Nations, and you're going to hear him rallying support for a global leader who can push a vast military-style campaign with power that transcends beyond even the governmental leaders of the world in order to achieve a fundamental economic transition. Take a listen to this. We also know that countries, many of whom are burdened by growing levels of debt, simply cannot afford to go green. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. We need a vast military-style campaign to marshal... Let, let, let me replay it so that you know I'm not making this up, okay? Let me just replay it. Listen to the last part of this. A vast military-style campaign to do what? Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector with trillions at his disposal. Who's his? Look what he goes on to say. Far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. Beyond what, can, we, can I just say the last part of this? Beyond what? Look what he says. It offers the only real prospect beyond even the governments of the world's leaders. It offers the only real... Beyond the governments of the world's leaders. Yeah, so his, his, his disposal. So, folks, we live, this is absolutely remarkable. And I'll guarantee you, he said this on purpose. He's reading his notes. Who do you think told him to say this? This was not a fluke, and by the way, there's only a few guys that have been yelling about this. Me, Tom, Andy Woods, a few others. And you know what they've been doing? They've been erasing this off the internet. We talk about from Daniel, from Book of Revelation, from various passages, there's going to be a global system. It will rise out of Europe and they will crown their leader and it will be a he. It won't be a she, it'll be a he. And the Book of Revelation calls him antichrist or beast he's going to be the most powerful leader the world has ever known the book of revelation tells us revelation chapter 13 that nobody can make war with him who can stop him absolutely nobody he obviously is talking about someone he's talking about someone that's a man he's talking about someone that nobody knows who he is yet he's the most powerful man of the world more powerful is he than all of the global leaders combined Revelation 17, the ten kings give their power and authority to the beast. If people can't see it now, James, you have to be in denial. Now, as I said before, this speech was made in November of 2021 at the Climate Change Conference 
for the United Nations, which has direct ties back to King Charles. The monarchy heads the Royal Institute of International Affairs, an institution designed to research and offer advice on world events and offer solutions for global challenges. Out of the Royal Institute of International Affairs came the League of Nations, the first worldwide intergovernmental organization tasked to maintain world peace. And out of the League of Nations came the United Nations, an organization whose main purpose is to maintain world peace and security, you know, like peace and safety, and to address issues that transcend national boundaries, things like the climate crisis, the global population, and disarmament. So not only is King Charles deeply invested in the World Economic Forum, but he's also heavily involved and influential in the United Nations. In fact, he played an instrumental part in the creation of these climate change conferences for the United Nations. In 1992, a landmark United Nations Earth Summit was held in Rio de Janeiro. It was the first time in 20 years that the United Nations had convened to discuss discuss environmental issues. It came about because a year prior, then Prince Charles hosted an informal reception off the coast of Brazil for delegates and members of the Environmental Protection Agency on the royal yacht to discuss issues before the summit. It was reported that he acted as intermediary and challenged global leaders to participate in the upcoming summit. Not only was the summit a huge success, but out of it came the Kyoto Protocol, which was a historic landmark in the international fight against climate change. In it, industrialized countries and economies within the United Nations committed to transition into limiting and reducing greenhouse gases. It was the birth of the Going Green movement, and out of the Kyoto Protocol came all of the climate change conferences. And to prove how instrumental King Charles was in orchestrating this agenda, a bronze figurine of Prince Charles was later commissioned by the president of central Brazil, who claimed that it represented Prince Charles, quote, saving the world. The figurine was of a semi-naked Prince Charles covered only in a loincloth, which is eerily reminiscent of pictures of Christ on the cross. And yet this figurine depicts Prince Charles also with a large set of angel wings. On the base of the figurine is inscribed the phrase, quote, Savior of the world, unquote. Yikes. Now, as time went on, the Kyoto Protocol was superseded by the Paris Agreement, in which King Charles was also instrumental. On December 12, 2015, at the Climate Change Conference titled COP21, located in Paris, France, 196 representatives of the world's leaders, 150 of which were actual heads of state, came together in the largest gathering of global leadership in the history of the world. And they signed a legally binding international treaty on climate change. And King Charles delivered the opening speech, calling this opportunity the, quote, last chance to save the world from the perils of global warming, unquote. And finally, let's skip forward to the COP27, which took place just six months ago. Now, King Charles wasn't able to attend the summit, but he held a reception for over 200 business leaders and members ahead of the summit, just like he had done for the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. But what's incredibly fascinating about this climate conference is that an invitation was extended to all of the world's religions, religious leaders, and religious communities who were promoted as playing a key role in addressing climate change. And they actually held an interfaith conference on top of Mount Sinai to introduce a new vision and put forth climate justice through the creation of a new Ten Commandments. 
I'm not making this up. Dozens of religious leaders from around the world gathered on top of Mount Sinai to hold a climate repentance ceremony and vowed to adhere to the new 10 spiritual principles for climate repentance. Now, this was followed by a 184-page document released by Pope Francis calling for a cultural revolution to change our lifestyles. Some articles alluded to Pope Francis playing a significant role in the creation of these commandments, calling them, quote, the Pope's Ten Commandments on Climate Change, unquote. And I think what's so deceitful about this, in my humble opinion, which really magnifies the level of evil that we're dealing with, which has such a way of manipulating the truth, is that these global elite are desperately shouting at us that we are killing our planet, humanity, the global population, and we as individuals need to do something about it, or it's going to be our fault when the world just can't recover because of the damage that we've done. And now they're telling us that we need to repent for it. And yet these same people own the oil companies that are dumping chemicals into our oceans, the byproducts of which are ruining our atmosphere. They're continually pumping out plastics which pollute our environments and coming up with consumable products that are packaged in material that isn't biodegradable or sustainable. They're pumping toxic chemicals into our dirt and onto our food and literally killing our farmland. Commercial agriculture leaves complete devastation in its wake, where the earth that was once used to grow food is a dried up wasteland that literally repels water. They are sucking the nutrients from our soil and our food, and after they've killed the ground beyond repair, they relocate. And yet these aren't the people being scolded. You'd think, and this is just me, that if you really cared about the climate change and the dangers of what we're doing to our Earth, the preservation of Earth's natural resources, you would target the companies and corporations who push products that aren't compliant in that agenda, not the people who buy those products. But they can't go after themselves, so instead they blame humanity with the ultimate goal of gaining complete control of all of our resources as a way of saving us from ourselves. As I said in episode 18, our food, our water, the air we breathe will one day be used as leverage against us by these demons. And speaking of control, now that Charles is king, he has the wealth of the crown directly at his disposal. You're talking between 40 and $50 billion, which may not seem all that powerful, except for the fact that he now also oversees the Commonwealth. Technically, the monarchy owns the land and resources in any and all Commonwealth countries. You're talking one-sixth of the world's surface and one-third of the global population is now under the leadership of King Charles, making the sovereign multiple times wealthier than the wealthiest people on the planet combined. Talk about power. And there's one last little tidbit that I want to leave you with today. In July of 2022, Prince Charles stepped in for Queen Elizabeth and gave the opening ceremony speech at the 2022 Commonwealth Games. He even drove in like the true climate champion he is, like James Bond in a vintage car that runs on wine instead of gas. Now, the Commonwealth Games are like a version of the Olympics for Britain and the Commonwealth countries. And if you didn't see the opening ceremony, which made headlines everywhere, I encourage you to Google it and brace yourself. It featured completely satanic imagery. It not only included a rising ziggurat structure, which they literally called the Birmingham Tower of Babel, 
but it also included a 30-foot-tall industrial-looking metallic bull that had red glowing eyes and smoke with flames that shot from his nostrils. A woman came along who tamed this giant bull and then rode the beast through the stadium. There was also a worship of sorts of this bull by the people on the field. And they opened the ceremony with a video of what appeared to be an asteroid entering the Earth's atmosphere and flying past every major city in every country on Earth. The narrator called it the death of a star and the shards of light from its demise were landing across the planet. It was eerily reminiscent of the fall of Lucifer, who was himself an angel of light. The ceremony promoted unity and oneness as they danced around and worshipped at the base of the Tower of Babel. And it also promoted coming together in light. And it also featured music from Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne. Now, the entire ceremony was advertised as the story of how Birmingham is connected to every corner of the world. But it seemed to solely focus around the Tower of Babel, the star falling from heaven, the beast, and the whore of Babylon. Rather than telling a history, maybe it was a foreshadowing of how Birmingham will eventually connect to every corner of the world, specifically through its future king. And that's where we're going to end today. Now, as I said earlier, next episode will be our final episode of this season. And let me tell you, I won't say that I saved the best for last, but our final episode is certainly going to be one of the most intense. Next episode, we're going to expose the kingdom of the Antichrist on earth. I'm talking about Satanism in the highest levels of government, world religions, Hollywood, the music industry, occult hierarchies that are currently in place and functioning to bring the Antichrist to power. We're going to talk hidden symbolism and probably one of the worst evils imaginable, child trafficking and satanic rituals. This is definitely going to be an explicit episode that is not child appropriate. But I share it only to bring to light what's happening in the shadows. We need to know our enemy and more specifically how he's manipulating us on all fronts right in front of our very eyes. And most people don't even recognize it. But you definitely will after you hear my next episode. And before we go, I just want to remind you that I'm not disappearing off the face of the earth. I'm simply taking the summer to enjoy some time with family while school is out. But I have an active Facebook group where I share headlines and communicate daily. So feel free to join the group if you're on social media to stay in touch. I'm also going to be revamping my blog over the summer and uploading all existing episodes along with reference material for my members to access. I'm actually thinking of moving it from a blog to an actual website and possibly creating a member sign-in feature. We'll see if I can figure out how to make that happen. In the meantime, information for accessing the blog, along with the Facebook group, are located in the description of today's episode. And if you're loving the podcast, please consider leaving me a review on whatever platform you're using. Reviews bring credibility for those who aren't familiar with my show, and I greatly value your feedback. Also, make sure to hit that subscribe button so that you receive notifications as new episodes are uploaded in the future, specifically when I come back in August. And as always, share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you next time.